we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray for us, for me, that you would enable us now to attend to your word. That you, Father, would enable us to give it the attention that it deserves. I pray that you would work this word in us, that you would break our hearts with us, that you would, through it, conform us to the very image of Christ. This, I pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Daniel. Daniel in chapter 9, please. Daniel chapter 9. I want to read verses 1 through 19. Daniel chapter 9, please. Hear the word of God. In the first year of Darius, the son of Assuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of, for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, 
Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations for the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, why do I take up this particular prayer of Daniel this morning? Well, you might remember that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago or whenever that I was going to take up sometime this fall uh, the prophetic book of Malachi. And I wanted to do that because Malachi, this prophecy of Malachi, is about our worship. That's simply our gathering to worship, but our worship 24-7. That is to say, our living our lives, revealing, showing, displaying the worth of God. Our word worship is rather trimmed down, old English word, worth-ship. And so we want to show the worth, the value, the glory, the majesty, really, of God. And so that's to be life. So that's what Malachi is about. So I want to get there. But before I get there, I wanted to spend a little bit of time preparing. And that preparation was to go through uh, this, these prayers of confession, right? And that because, you see, confession is at the very heart of the gospel. God promises to forgive the sins of those who trust in Jesus and confess their sins. Confession is at the very heart of conversion because when we turn from our sin to God through Jesus, conversion, uh, we pray that our sins be forgiven. Confession means to agree with that which God says. We're saying after him. We're agreeing with him. And what we're agreeing is that we've sinned and that there is forgiveness of sins through Jesus. We make confession of our sin. It's the very heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of conversion. It's the very heart of what we call justification, a technical term that describes believers in Christ. Justification means that that God has declared us righteous in his sight. Well, confession of sin is is the very heart of that because, you see, to be declared righteous first, we must be forgiven. And so we're forgiven our sins and that because of Jesus, because he died for us, because the righteous requirement of the law was met in him. What does that mean? It means that the law required obedience and for disobedience was this wrath of God. Jesus took it. So the righteous requirement of the law, that wrath of God upon sinners, upon those who disobeyed, was taken in Jesus. Therefore, confession really is at the very heart of justification. Confession is is at the very heart of our ongoing relationship with God. Because you see, once forgiven, we are adopted into his family, reconciled to him, adopted into his family. He's our father. And thus, as we sin against him now, which we still do, though forgiven, We must acknowledge that. We must go before him and say to him, we're sorry for our sin and thus relationally be reconciled to him. Confession 
is at the heart of our ongoing relationship uh, with God. Confession is at the heart of our worship. And we structure our corporate worship the way that we do because because this is how we live in the presence of God. We, We recognize first his presence and we have this invocation where we acknowledge his presence. We hear his call to worship and all of that. We concentrate our attention on him. And then the question is asked, how can sinners live in the presence of God? Thus, then we make confession of our sin. We receive his forgiveness. We acknowledge it. Therefore, we can live in his presence so that we know that our prayers will be heard. We give him praise and thanks for all that he has done. We listen to his word. We depend upon his spirit to help us live that out. That's the very nature of life. And so confession really is a piece of at the heart of perhaps even we could say of our worship. So that's why I started a few weeks ago. You remember with with this Psalm 51, which was the prayer of David after he had grievously sinned, after he had sinned sexually with this woman Bathsheba, after he had lied about it, after he had murdered, had her husband murdered, killed and all of that. So David in Psalm 51 lays out how it is that we're to think and feel when confronted with our sin. And then he lays out what we're to do about it. And so he pleads the mercy of God for forgiveness, nothing in himself, but the mercy of God, that God would see him in his weakness, see him in his misery, and come and forgive his sins. So he prays that God would blot out his transgressions, that he would wash him clean, that he would cleanse him. And only that David repents, you remember, of his sin. He says, this is what we need to do too. If, if sin is such that it's out to destroy us, then not only do we need to be forgiven of it, but we need to rid ourselves of it. And so we pray to God that he would create in us a clean heart, renew in us a right spirit, uphold us by a, giving us a willing heart, a heart that really desires to follow after him. And he says, even in the midst of that, we can trust God in his wise love for us because he may still discipline us. Because of our sin, not that he hasn't forgiven us, but because he wants to humble us and, 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 and make us know, really know how wicked sin is so that we would desire to flee, to flee from it. Well, now we come to this prayer of Daniel. Clearly, it's a prayer of confession. And it's like the prayer that David prays. It's like the prayer that David prays in the sense that he realizes that his sin and the sin of the nation is against God. He realizes that this sin is transgression against the law of God. He realizes that God is just in his judgment against sin and against him and against the people. And he pleads, not their own righteousness, but the mercy of God, that God would forgive. But but there's something else about this prayer. A nuance, something, something that, that David doesn't really bring out in his prayer of confession in Psalm 51. Because it, in a sense, David's condition, David's context is a bit different than that of Daniel's. David's context is clearly his own personal sin before God. But you'll notice that Daniel confesses the sins of the nation against God. And that's both surprising and instructive. Uh, Surprising because Daniel was a faithful man. You get the impression as we read through this book, not that Daniel was without sin, certainly not. But but, but, but the the sense you get about him, he was a man who's seeking after the heart of God. When when he comes to be part of Babylon in that exile bit of history here, 
Remember that the nation of Israel was formed when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt through Mount Sinai. They entered the land under Joshua. They were ruled by judges for a time, then King Saul, David, then Solomon. And you you remember in the midst of that nation, God formed them by way of covenant. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he laid out for them various stipulations. And he says, if, you, if you're faithful to me, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If, if not, then the curse will come. And the curse will come is that I'll drive you from the land. And you remember then that after King Solomon, the nation divided into two nations, the northern kingdom, which was to the north, and the southern kingdom, which was to the south. The northern kingdom, 10 tribes, They sinned against God in 722 B.C. The Assyrians came and destroyed the northern kingdom. The two tribes to the south named Judah, Judah and Benjamin named Judah, uh, were were still around after the northern kingdom uh, was judged, if you will, destroyed. But they sinned as well. The Babylonians came in 586 B.C. destroyed the city of Jerusalem. This time, the people, some killed in Jerusalem, a few stayed, but many were exiled. That is, the, the plan of the Babylonians was to, to take their conquered people out of their land and mix and mingle them with their own culture and thus destroy them that way. So they brought the, the people of Judah and they exiled them. Daniel was one of the first to be exiled. He was a fine, strong, uh, intelligent young man. And you remember that when he was confronted with the culture of Babylon, he didn't give in. He said, no, I'm going to continue to live my life under the law of God. And I'm going to continue to eat, if you will, the way that God has instructed us to eat. And this can be a test for you Babylonians. See how it works out. And of course, it worked out well. Later we find, after this story, later we find that Daniel was uh, confronted uh, with an edict not to pray. And of course, he continued to pray even when his life was threatened. You know that lion's den story. But, But we see Daniel as a faithful man. But now he comes and he makes confession. And he includes himself in the sins of the people. Is he always, in our lives with God, there's an I-ness to it, but there's also a we-ness to it. Daniel doesn't pray that God would deal with their sins, forgive their sins. He says, we've sinned, forgive us. So he's with them in this. We're implicated in each other's lives. Part of a whole, the people of God. Daniel knew that. And and so that's instructive to us. But Daniel comes to pray now because he's been reading the Bible. Daniel's into probably his sixth decade in Babylon. Think about that. He's been there a long time. And he begins to read, or he's been reading at least, uh, the prophet uh, Jeremiah. And when he reads the prophet Jeremiah, he realizes that God had made a promise concerning this exile, concerning this time of judgment, if you will. For instance, in Jeremiah in chapter 25 and verse 11, uh, the Lord speaks uh, like this. He says, this whole land, that is the land of Judah, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste 
And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation, uh, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I'll bring upon that land all the works that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves, even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Daniel began to do the math. And he said, oh, this is coming up. And not only that, he knew the observation. Darius had become king over the realm of the Chaldeans, over the realm of the Babylonians. That is to say, that defeat of the Babylonians had happened by the Medes, by the Persians. And so Daniel realizes, oh, this has come to pass. And then he would read on, for instance, in Jeremiah in chapter 29. God speaks to them then for thus, verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. In other words, what Daniel is realizing is that God has made a promise that after these 70 years, after the Babylonians then are, are, are judged for their evil and all of that, then he's going to bring back the people of Judah into Jerusalem. He says, then I will fulfill to, fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which uh, I sent you into exile. So think about it. Daniel's realizing all of this. And then he looks upon his people in that place. And he realizes that while God has made a promise to bring the people back, the people aren't ready at all. Notice how he puts it in verse 13. He says, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. That is this, this, this devastation, this, this exile for these decades. All this calamity has come upon us. Yet, even still, we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. You see, he looks at that situation and it literally breaks his heart, and he prays. Now, now you might say, well, why did he pray? God had promised after 70 years this is all going to happen. So, so why, why didn't he just announce to the people, hey, it's going to happen. We're all going to go back. Well, well because, you see, um, the promises of God aren't to keep us from praying, but to encourage us, incite us. To pray. That is, we're to hear these promises of God. They're to mingle and mix with our own desires. They're to transform our own desires so that we desire that which God desires. And then we can't not ask that they come to pass. It's sort of like you have a kid and you tell a little child you're going to go to the zoo next week. Do they then not speak of that for the next seven days? Or do they drive you crazy? What if they really want to go to the zoo? They're watching all the time to see if preparations are being made. And if preparations aren't being made, they look and they say, are we really going to the zoo? 
on the day, the morning, the day before. All they can talk about is going to the zoo. It's on their mind because why? That's the desire of their heart. As God gives us promises and we say, yes, that's right. Yes, that's good. That's the way it ought to be. There is something in us that compels us really to pray. In fact, I can tell, a test for me, to tell me if I've really engaged in my Bible reading is if it incites me to pray. So I can read my Bible for all kinds of reasons. One out of duty. Oh, I'm going to check off the list four chapters a day so I can get through the Bible in a year and all of that sort of thing. Or I should do this because I'm a pastor, right? So I can check it off. But I can read it as if it's the New York Times. And just put it down afterwards as if it's of no impact at all. It's just sort of read it because I've read it before, because whatever. But I know that I've engaged in it when I can't not pray. When it compels me to pray. And Daniel reads this word and he says, this is how it ought to be. This is the will of God. This is what will honor him. This is his heart's desire to restore a people. And when he said restore a people, he didn't mean just bring us back so we could live in the land. He meant restore a people to him so that they would live faithfully in his presence. That's what the promise was. That would be the best thing that could ever happen to a people. And and Daniel sees we're not ready at all for that. We've been living in Babylon all these years. We've kind of become immersed, at least they have, in the culture. and, And here we are, and I'm with them. It was rather like Isaiah. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. Daniel had seen it, and he realized there they were. And no one seemed to be entreating upon the Lord, asking for God's favor to help them, to restore them, to bring them into his presence, to enable them to live faithfully. And so that's what incited, you see, Uh, Daniel to pray, I wonder what breaks my heart. What really moves me to seek, to really seek the Lord. And for Daniel, that meant really seek the Lord. You can say it, see it by his actions. He he fasted, and and this was no hunger strike on the part of David to say, God, I'm not going to eat till you make this all right. Uh, it was more uh, sort of what we might even think of as, a, as kind of a natural response to this. How can I eat at a time like this? I mean, what, food won't help me now. The only thing that will help me is if God hears my prayers and acts. That, that's this notion here of fasting. Oh, you can fast as a discipline and all of that, and, and it may be profitable for your spiritual life. But in this instance, David's fasting was a response. It was saying, how can I eat at a time like this? He dressed appropriately well as, as well. How can I put on nice clothes? How, how can I put on a colorful, colorful shirt when this is taking place? I'm in mourning. And traditionally, after a funeral, people have worn black. Why? Because Well, it reflected the mood. Sackcloth and ashes reflected the mood to where anything else would have been disingenuous for Daniel at that point in time. So he put on clothing that reflected the mourning, the grief that he had over their sin. He poured ashes over his head to say, this is is how it is with us. And so all of that together 
reflected the passion, the intensity of his feeling at the moment. Now, obviously, we don't feel that way all the time. Daniel didn't either. This is a moment in time. But still, I have to look at myself and ask the question, do I ever feel like that? Well, I, I do when whatever is happening really inconveniences me. And I plead to the Lord, change this. It hurts. I don't like this. Right? But how about? How about when God's name is dishonored? You see, that's what really was behind all of this for Daniel. What was really behind all of this for Daniel is that the name of God was being dishonored by the people of God. Notice how he puts it in verse 16. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for our iniquities of, and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. In other words, he's saying, listen, if all the nations, everybody looks at us as Israelites, as those who belong to God, and they bring, in, in this, our condition brings scorn upon you, God. Why is that? Because God, you said Jerusalem is your city and it's in ruins. And so people think you have no power at all or you don't exist at all. God, we're known as your people. We carry your name. We have bumper stickers on our cars with fish on them and all of that. People know that we belong to you. And yet, none of us pay any attention to you. None of us give you the time of day, really. None of us acts as if you're even there or even matter. And none of us pray to you. None of us entreat. None of us depend upon you. We're kind of fat and happy in Babylon. Everything's all right the way things are. Nobody's really coming to you. Say, God, can you make this better? God, can you restore us to this place? God, would you please uh, allow us to live in your very presence? And so everybody around is saying, their God must be nothing. No thing really at all. So Daniel sees that. That's what drives him to his knees. That's really what breaks his heart. And again, I apply that to me and I wonder, is my heart really broken when I see the name of God dishonored? In my own life, when I dishonor him, does it break my heart? In the lives of the community of people in which we live, when we, for whatever behaviors, whatever thoughts are true of us, uh, does it break our hearts when the name of God is besmirched, when the name of God is dishonored, whatever that may be, by our materialism as we live in such a way that says that really our possessions are what really matters, not so much God providing, that we need this. And if we don't have this, then we won't be happy. If we don't have this, then we'll be miserable. Oh, we'll entreat God to give us this, but why? So that we can be more comfortable or that he can be shown to be great. Can we really say, God, show yourself to be great. Give me whatever it is 
by way of possessions that will honor your name. Do that, you see. Whereby when God's name is dishonored because we gossip about one another, because we slander one another, right? Is that what bothers us? Is it bother us that our names are being besmirched or God's in the midst of this, you say? No, no, his name, you see. In the country, the world in which we live, when God is dishonored because people act as if he doesn't even exist, does our pride well up and say, oh, I know better than they do. They should be like me. Or are we disturbed because God is being dishonored. His name is being drawn through the mud. The way we live in our sexual lives. The, the little value we place on human life as our world aborts unborn. Children as we care little for the poor and the aged. All of that. Does that break our hearts when we know a God of compassion, a God who gives life, a God who is kind, a God who is merciful? And none of that's being reflected in the world in which we live. Does it really trouble us when we watch in television or a movie and, and, and the name of the Lord is taken in vain? Or are we so used to it that it sort of flies by or is there something within us that goes, Ugh, God. Honor your name here, God. Or when we do that kind of thing, does it really bother us? I mean, does it really impact us? And so, see, Daniel sees this. And, and, it, and because he realizes that it's God's honor, God's glory, God's name that's being defamed, that drives him to his knees. And so his plea is that God would work in such a way that God himself would honor his own name. Do you pray like that? Oh, we really do. Uh, we don't usually think about it. But at the end of our prayers, we always tack on in Jesus' name. Right? What are we really saying then? We're saying, do this for the sake of Jesus, because of him. Show him to be great. We're coming to you in the name of Jesus because we can't come in ourselves because we're unworthy to come because of our sin and all of that. So receive us in Jesus' name. And all these requests do in Jesus' name. Do in such a way, God, that will show him to be the Savior, to show him to be the Lord. We come in Jesus' name. This has been the appeal throughout all of the scriptures, all of the, the, the history of the church. Uh, prayers have pled the name of God. For instance, in that psalm that we know so well, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Why? So that all the world will know this is the right path because this is the path of God. It's not the right path because Bill's walking it. It's the right path because it's the path of God. And he leads. It's his path. Psalm 25 and verse 11. The psalmist 
puts it like this. He says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for his great. He says, he says, pardon my guilt. Why? Yes, I'm a sinner. I need to be pardoned. I have nothing in myself. But show yourself to be who you are, the merciful, compassionate God, so people will know that of you. In Psalm 31 and verse 3, we read this, for you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. That is to show yourself to be great. In Psalm 79 in verse 9, as the psalmist comes again to, to ask forgiveness of sins, he said, he said, help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sin. You see, when God does that, which is for his namesake, what he's doing is glorifying himself. And we realize that everything exists for the glory of God. Why did God create anything at all? Not because he was lonely, not because he was unhappy, not because he needed fellowship or he wouldn't be complete. He did it because he's glorious. And all of this would reflect his glory. And, and that isn't egotistical on the part of God. It isn't that he's this little kid running around saying, honor me, honor me, honor me. Pay attention to me, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. No, no. It would be egotistical in us if we did. It would be wrong if, if, if we did what we did so that it would all reflect and glorify us. We're not all that glorious, but he is. There isn't anything better than God. And whatever is, is best when it reflects him because he is perfect. The greatest gift God gives to us is to work everything for his glory. And so you see, that's why we exist. Daniel knew that's why we exist. And when he saw that God wasn't being glorified by his very own people, it drove him to pray. But, but there's more than just trying to get the best, if you will, for us. But he realized, Daniel did, that this life that did not glorify God, or if we could turn to biblical phrase, fell short of his glory, was sin. And that sin meaning that it disparaged the name, the honor, the glory of God. What sin does, you see, when we fail to reflect the glory of God? What sin does, you see, is it says that God isn't glorious, that God isn't worth it, that his wisdom isn't wise enough to be followed, that his compassion isn't, isn't loving enough to be emulated. That's what it says, you see. That his commands aren't righteous enough to really be followed, that he isn't supplier sufficient enough to be trusted. That's what it means. And so you see, it's the height, we could put it this way, of injustice to go against the glory of God. So Daniel sees all of this and again it breaks his heart. Why? Because he's a man of God. Because he loves God and he desires to see God glorified. 
And so the, the appeal in Scripture is always this. Help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins. Because the realization is, yes, if that takes place, then all is well. If God's name is being glorified, it's being honored, then yes, all then is well. This great expression, we all know it from Psalm 46. Be still. And know that I am God. What gives us that kind of peace? That we can be still. You know how this psalm begins. Right? The psalm begins by saying, God is our refuge and strength and very help in time of trouble. Therefore, we won't fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. How then can any be still in the midst of that? Well, he says, be still and know I'm, I'm God. Why? Because I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When you see my glory, ah, then you'll get it. You'll be able to rest. If only you can see my glory, then all will be well. We were singing this morning, and I was realizing that's it, isn't it? That's, that's the very sense of it. This, this song, the lost are saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. It's only by the name of Jesus that any are saved, that the lost find their way. All condemned feel no shame. Why? Because the name of Jesus. You see, his name, when it's glorified, he saves. Every fear has no place at the sound of your great name. When we really see the glory of Christ, why should we be afraid? The enemy has, he has to leave. Why? In the face of the name of Jesus. Why? Because he's glorious. He's the conquering king. Uh, all the weak find their strength at the sound of his name. We think about Jesus. We're strengthened. When we, we know his presence, we're strengthened. Why? Because he's the strong one. The hungry souls receive grace at the sound of his name. The fatherless find their rest. When we speak of the fatherless, especially in the scripture, we're speaking of those who are most vulnerable. They have no one to look after them, the fatherless. But even they find their rest. Why? Because at the name of, of, of Jesus, there is reconciliation with the Father. Uh, the sick are healed and the dead are raised at the sound of your great name. No matter what we go through in the context of this, like physically, emotionally, whatever it is, we know a day will come when all that will be made whole. Why? Because of the name of Jesus. And so Daniel looks around and he sees the name of God being dishonored. He doesn't see God being glorified by his very own people. And so he hits his knees and he pleads with God. And the basis upon which he pleads is just the mercy of God. Yes, the righteousness of God, that is that God would act according to his promise, which is that he's being merciful and compassionate to his people. And then he pleads the very name of God that God will do Restore, heal, forgive for his great name. I was thinking as, as this academic year begins, you know, in Lawrence, we really live on this academic calendar. Everything sort of flies and we rest in the summer a little bit and then everything happens. I don't know how Joyce is going to transcribe on the thing, but there you go. Everything happens. And as I really think about the year that comes, here's my prayer. That 
I who desire above all else the glory of God. That I would desire everything else. That the name of God would be honored in my life, in our lives, in our city, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our state, in our country, throughout the world. And that when I see the name of God not being honored, that it would break my heart in my own life, in our life together, in our community, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, in our families, throughout the state, throughout the country, throughout the world. And when my heart would be broken, that I would go to my knees and I would plead to God on the basis of his name for the sake of his glory, that he would forgive me and us and those in our community and our families and our schools and our workplaces and our neighborhoods and throughout the state and throughout the world, and that he would restore us to himself. Me. Us. Our community. Throughout our state, throughout the country, throughout the world. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that we would learn to pray. That as we see that which glorifies you, as we read the scriptures, we see that which glorifies you. That we, God, would be knit to that in such a way that we'd be grieved when you're dishonored, thrilled when we see you being honored. So, Father, we lay out our own lives we confess our sins. We lay out our community and we confess our sins. We lay out our country and we confess our sins. We think of the world and we confess our sins. And we pray, God, that you would work in us in such a way for the sake of your own name that people would honor you. Father, we pray that uh, for those, especially in our congregation this morning, who are hurting in various ways, when, God, your glory may be blurred and it's hard to see it, and I pray that you would give strength to those who are weak, that you would bring healing for those who are sick, that you would bring encouragement to those who are discouraged, that you would bring financial help to those in material need, that you would bring relationships to those who are lonely. God, you would show yourself great for the sake of your own name. May we be a people that shows that you are great and all-sufficient. Father, I pray that your word would 
spread rapidly so that you may be honored. Take this, this word of the gospel that is in our lives, upon our lips, and, 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 and Father, I pray that you would, through us, spread it throughout our, our families, throughout our church, throughout our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, our state, our country, our world, so that your glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. May we be a people, God, that shows the worth of your name. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.